Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia, where we discuss states and societies in the region. I'm Ewan Graham, Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. Joining me today is John Brumby, La Trobe University's new Chancellor, former Premier of Victoria, and until recently, a board member of Huawei Australia. John, many congratulations on your appointment. Welcome to the university. Um, that's terrific. Thank you, Ewan, and uh, congratulations too for your appointment last year, and, and thanks for the opportunity of doing the interview today. Thank you. Before we get into discussing Asia, uh, as our incoming Chancellor, do you believe there is a moral role for universities in today's society? I think there's a crucial role, more generally, for universities in Australia's society today. There's a, a leadership role in education, there's a leadership role in scholarship, a leadership role in uh, economics. As to the moral role, I haven't thought deeply about that, but if you're asking about questions of leadership and direction for the nation, uh, for our community at large, then I think there's a crucial role. You know, universities are amongst our longest, best known and well-regarded institutions. So they have a crucial leadership role, particularly with Australia's place in the world, our values and how we see our contribution to the region around us. If I asked you to describe your vision for La Trobe University's engagement with Asia, what would it look like? What are the most important relationships to get right in Asia and why? Well, I begin as Chancellor on March the 29th, so I don't want to preempt that. That'll be one of the key questions, I think, in terms of future directions for the university. But the university, although we're just over 50 years old, there's a long, long history really as a leader in terms of engagement in Asia and particularly with China, uh, but more recently with India and, and many other countries in Asia. Uh, I'm one of those people who believes our place is very strongly based in the region. We're seeing continuing strong growth in China. We're going to see Indonesia emerge as one of the top half a dozen economies in the world, probably within the next decade. And of course, India, uh, which is a powerhouse in its own right. And within a decade, we'll have something like a third of the world's workforce aged under 40. So these are countries in our region with whom we already have a very good relationship. And I think in many ways, the world is our oyster if we want to develop and to build that relationship in the future. To go to your first question today, is there a, a moral duty or a moral imperative or moral leadership in that? I think there is. For Australia, we've got a key leadership role in our region. We are one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Stability in our region depends very much on the relationships that we form. And our universities have got a key role in building personal relationships and community-based relationships. So I'm very bullish in general about Asia, the Asia-Pacific, and I see Australia's future as linked uh, to the future of Asia. Well, that's great to hear because that's very much part of our role here at La Trobe Asia. Turning to geopolitics now, the frosty US-China relationship is being compared to a, a new kind of Cold War. What course do you think Australia should aim to navigate between China, our biggest trading partner, and the United States, still our only treaty ally, closest intelligence partner, and largest source of accumulated investment. So there's lots of descriptors which are used about where we are at the moment, I think, in the US-China relationship. Is it a new Cold War? China, even at growth rates of 6 or 
you're seeing a doubling of the size of their economy every 10 years. The Chinese economy is now more than 20% larger than the US economy. And so I think there is a growing view in the United States that China is now bigger and more powerful and more dominant, particularly in areas of technology, than the Americans could have appreciated. And so there's this prevailing view, which I don't believe is correct, and I don't believe is in the long-term interests of America or the world, that the only solution for the United States is to completely disengage and disentangle their economic relationship with China. And their starting point to do that is in the areas of technology, where the truth of the matter is that in many areas now, China is technologically superior to the United States. Uh, One of those areas is in telecommunications, in 5G, where most analysts would say that Huawei, the Chinese company, is one to two years ahead of its competitors, who are American, Nokia, and Ericsson. In areas like robotics, AI, many analysts think that China is actually at par or even moving ahead of the United States. So I think what you're seeing is this view in, the, in America to disengage and disentangle, to go head on, full speed, particularly with the Chinese technology companies, of which Huawei is at the forefront. And of course, that's complemented by what the US is doing with its allies in the Five Eyes, where they are putting extraordinary pressure on domestic governments on Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and the UK for them to also disengage with Huawei in particular. So this is where we're at. In the meantime from this, Ewan, there are no winners. We're already seeing a slowing in the US economy. We're seeing a slowing in the Chinese economy. US firms like Apple and Caterpillar are seeing big downgrades in their earnings uh, because people in China aren't buying their products anymore. So there are no winners out of trade wars. If this economic technological decoupling builds steam and and we actually find ourselves forced to choose between US and Chinese economic spheres of influence, which way should we go? Well, I gave you a, a long and complicated answer before because I was hoping you wouldn't ask that question. This is a very difficult choice Uh, for Australia. You know, our long-term ally has been the United States. And the fact of the matter is, right or wrong, they don't like China at the moment. For us, China is by far our most important economic partner. I can't stress this enough. I think 10 separate areas of economic activity, whether it's exports, whether it's agricultural exports, whether it's tourists, whether it's full fee paying overseas students, and so the list Uh, goes on. And looking forward, again, I'm pretty bullish about the Chinese economy. They're not going to be growing at 8, 9 or 10%, but they'll keep growing with a 6 in front of them for quite a few more years, and then a 5 in front of them in an economy which is already in PPP terms by far the biggest in the world. So I don't think we can afford to be the meat in the sandwich. I don't think we can afford to be if you like, the United States sheriff in Asia, we do have to plot an independent route. And I think at the moment, the current government, they've avoided commenting directly or criticising China. I commend them for that because I think we've gone through a period where some of the comments that have been made 
have been quite ill-informed and quite negatively received in China. But look, Ewan, this is the big challenge for Australia. We've got to walk this fine line. But above all of this, I think our relationship going forward, our place in the region is not just about China. It's going to be about China, but China is a big part of it and certainly the most problematic at the moment. But I make one other point about this. There's been no time in our history where China hasn't been our friend. You can go back to the First World War, to the Second World War. I mean, Chinese troops fought alongside Australian troops. There's a great deal of friendship, I think, between Australia and China. We shouldn't ever lose sight of that. And of course, we've got now 1.2 million Australians of Chinese heritage from throughout the region. So this is a big part of the Australian population. Now, you make a very bullish case for an economic engagement with China, but should we be concerned that China has an authoritarian single-party system of government that is subjecting the Chinese people to ever tighter surveillance and social controls, including the internment of Uyghur Muslims on a massive scale? I think most people in Australia and in the Western world would aspire and, and hope that over time, over years over decades that China would move to a more democratic system of government. But at the end of the day, what they do with their country is a matter for them in the same way as what we do with our country. It's a matter of our sovereignty. It's a matter for us. So we're not in the business and I'm not in the business of telling other countries how to run their system of government or their system of democracy. I'm a relative newcomer to China. My first visit to China was in 2000. I've been there probably 40 or 50 times since. But for those who know China better than me and have written about these matters, while we still think that China curtails many freedoms and is certainly more authoritarian than we are, it's also true to say that over the last two decades, there have been an enormous number of improvements in the freedoms of individuals within China. And of course, we've now got 100 million Chinese every year who travel overseas and see you know, the rest of the world. So China is gradually improving their freedoms. I think it would be erroneous to say otherwise, but in our minds, they've got a long way to go. And the only other point I'd make is I wouldn't want to be running a country of 1.4 billion people. I think it would be an extraordinarily complex task. And so we need to be mindful in Australia as a small country that we don't give China, a country with a much longer modern history than ours, too much advice on how to run their affairs. Chinese are generally happy with their government. They're generally happy with their economy. So I'm not saying, I don't want to be misquoted on this, I'm not saying China's perfect and I'm not saying there's not concern in the world about the apparent concentration of power in Xi Jinping's hands. I think that's concerned many people in the world, probably many Chinese citizens as well. But again, it's not for us to make judgments about that in the same way as we don't want the Chinese making judgments about our system of government, though I'm sure they have views about it, particularly our turnover of prime ministers in the last 10 years. So our system hasn't been really perfect either. 
Taking our focus back to the education sector, Australian universities have heavily engaged with Chinese institutions, both in research and student recruitment. This has become vital to their funding model in many cases. Do you believe that there are risks as well as opportunities associated with such relationships and how should these be managed? Of course there are risks, but is it a good thing for universities generally to diversify their uh, source of students and to diversify their revenue stream? I think that's, that's a good thing. Can you be too reliant on a particular sector or a particular country? Yes, you can. For any university, drawing our overseas students from a variety of countries is a good thing to do, again, to go back to your original question about sort of moral leadership, it's a good thing to do in terms of the values and the leadership qualities that a university can can bring to the region and to the students that we educate. But it's a good thing too in budgetary and finance terms to diversify risk. But I would say this, this year, 2019, Australia is likely to uh, surpass the UK in our absolute number of full fee-paying overseas students. I mean, it's an extraordinary achievement. Think of the UK with a population much bigger than ours. We're going to surpass them and rank number two in the world. So I think this has been a wonderful story for Australia, the biggest engagement that our country has had with Asia, the biggest partnership has been through our university sector. And there's been literally millions of students from China, from all of those Asian Pacific countries that have been educated in Australia. And by and large, if they've gone back home or somewhere else in the world, they've gone back firstly with a great education, but secondly, with a very positive view about Australia and the region. And so I think this is a, an extraordinary success story. The big challenge, Ewan, is for us to think in a more competitive global environment, what do we need to do to maintain and grow those student numbers? Because we live in a world where now individuals demand more choice, their expectations are higher, and so we've got to respond to that. And I think that's going to be quite challenging to the Australian university sector. You mentioned diversification from an economic viewpoint, and I think that point certainly registers when it comes to the importance of engaging across the whole expansive canvas of Asia, including not just the large countries that stand out, China, India, but also Southeast Asia uh, as well. You mentioned the UK. That links to the next point I'd like to bring back in and also your, your previous involvement with Huawei. Oxford University recently announced that it has suspended donations and research grants from Huawei amid mounting concerns about the company's reputation and allegations of involvement in technology theft. How would you advise Australian universities that have already entered into partnerships with Huawei or that are giving this active consideration? So, um, so, I, so at this point in time, at uh, this date of doing the interview, I re- I'm still a director of Huawei. I, I complete as a director on March the 1st, uh, which would be eight years uh, as a director, which is a pretty good run. So just to be clear with my role with Huawei, I advised the company over a year ago of my intention to step down, in part because of my increased responsibilities coming up in the future as Chancellor at La Trobe, but also some other appointments that I have uh, coming up later this year. So Huawei 
really until probably the last 18 months, two years, where we've seen this escalation in conflict between the US and China. Huawei has been and was universally positively regarded virtually in every country around the world. I mean, we're not a state-owned enterprise. We've got 160,000 employees. We're one of the biggest investors in research and development in the world. And we operate in something like 70 countries overseas with 100 billion US of sales last year. On the issue of technology theft, you know, people used to say this about Japan 30 years ago. They certainly say it about China. And some people have said it about Huawei. I don't doubt these things in the past may have been true of Japan going back post-Second World War. They may have been true of China. They may have been true, I don't know, of Huawei 20 years ago. I don't think, and I don't think with a high degree of confidence, that it is correct to say that today. You can't be a leader. You can't be a year or two years ahead in 5G if you've relied on theft If you've relied on theft, you'll only be as good as what you've thieved, what you've taken. So we spent last year more than 13 billion US on research and development around the world. It's not all in China. It's in research labs in Canada, in Europe, in the UK, here in Melbourne. So it's just untrue that the company steals or needs to steal intellectual property. And and one final thing, computer chips. You know, we've been one of Intel's biggest customers over the years, but because of the trade war with the United States, in the last two years, we've started developing our own computer chips. So this year, we'll be producing them. They'll actually be superior to the Intel product, and that'll be another casualty of Trump's trade war. Think of the phones. So which company was it that started this partnership we had with Leica, putting dual cameras on the back? I mean, that wasn't a a stolen idea, like it was our idea. We put that on the back and now every other company, including Apple, is following what we've done. And then we put four cameras on the back. And guess what? Now every other company around the world is following us. I've been in events in the United States, Ewan, where really I've I've seen apparently successful, well-educated business leaders in the United States get up and say, you know, China... You know, they've never invented a single thing in their whole history. Every new idea they've had, they've stolen from the United States. Well, really, like China's got a pretty long history, like printing and gunpowder. So there's a lot of protectionism at the moment. So I don't accept that about theft. I just don't accept it. We're not only talking about the United States. Um, I mentioned Oxford University. There's also been concerted action amongst the so-called Five Eyes partners, particularly when it comes to participation in, in 5G. So how do you explain that? Have, have they all got it wrong? There's two arguments. There's the argument about technological leadership, which I discussed very early on in our interview. And this is a recognition now in the United States that in terms, firstly, of economic size, but secondly, technological dominance, that in so many areas, potentially AI, robotics, certainly 5G, China is now ahead of the United States. And the only solution for the United States is to draw a line. It's the Iron Curtain, it's the Silicon Curtain, to draw that line and to completely disengage, decouple with China. So that's a prevailing economic 
and strategic sentiment. I don't think it's the right one for the United States. I don't think it's the right one for the world. But nevertheless, that's the course they're on. And coupled with that, you've got the assessment of the security agencies, which basically says, yes, China is now dominant in many of these areas. China is a one-party state. They have a law that says that if Xi Jinping asks a Chinese company to help with intelligence, the company must help. And they say that's too great a risk. They don't say in any of the commentary that you've seen publicly that Huawei, for example, has been asked or has passed over information. No one has said that, but they say it is nevertheless too great a risk. You put those two things together and what the US is on is a strategy around the world putting immense pressure on their allies for other countries to also disengage and disentangle from Chinese technology companies. So it's not just Huawei we're talking about. Huawei is is the trigger point. If you read the press on this, you'll see there's another bill being considered for for the US which would ban any engagement, any involvement with any Chinese communications company. So this is Oppo and it's Xiaomi, it's all of them, right? So this is a radical decoupling, I think, that the world probably hasn't seen for hundreds of years. Then to take it back to the tail end of my question, what are the implications for Australian universities that have already entered into partnerships? Look, I don't think there's an issue, and Huawei says this, we've never, ever, no one's ever pointed the finger at us and said that we've misused information or that we've had a code. No one has ever said that. In fact, in the UK, we've funded a laboratory there so that every piece of equipment that's used in the UK system is subject to independent testing to make sure that there can't be any so-called backdoors. You know, these things go in cycles. Three years ago, four years ago, relationships between the US and China, between Australia and China in particular, were at their high point. Now the balance has turned and the pendulum has swung very, very, very sharply. I don't think it can actually get much more intense. And one day it's going to swing back And we'll look back on this era as a sort of protectionist Cold War and say, how did we get ourselves into that position? How did we become, in the Western world, so anti-China, when in my view, the best strategy for the world going forward, obviously the US and China have got to reach a landing point. And ditto in communications, Ewan. You know, the best security you'll ever have in a communication system is not having one vendor from one country. That's the worst. Whether it's Chinese or American, it doesn't matter. That's the worst. You're most open to monopolistic pricing and to abuse of that system. The best system is a variety of vendors from a variety of countries, you know, from the US companies, Chinese companies, Japanese companies working together so that you're all in a partnership and you can put in place the best security. That's where the world needs to be. We're very confident, if I put my Huawei hat on, with all of the agreements we've signed with Australian universities. They're about supporting their IT. We've got the best 4G kit in the world, we've got the best 5G kit in the world, not that the universities can use it, and we've got the best cyber security protection. So I don't have any doubts about universities doing that, but it's obviously a matter for individual universities. John Brumby, we look forward to continuing this uh, conversation. Uh, the issues will, as you said, continue to uh, intensify and run much. Unfortunately for Latrobe Asia, that gives us our, our rationale for the things to do research and talk about. 
very grateful for your time today. That's it for this edition of Asia Rising. You can subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts and a multitude of delivery apps. Please leave a review. I'm Ewan Graham, and thanks for listening. <laughs>